bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, May 22, 2012. I'll begin by sharing some of the comments and remarks that were made last week by lawmakers regarding the debt ceiling, tax extenders, and tax reform. In our new markets tax credit discussion, I'll update listeners on the timing of the next allocation application round, and there is a significant update. I'll also discuss the provisions of a bill that would make low population census tracts eligible for the new market tax credit program. In the low-income housing tax credit section of this week's podcast, I discuss a briefing conducted recently to educate Capitol Hill staff on the benefits and impacts of the low-income housing tax credit. I also review changes to the Section 8 program that were proposed last week by HUD. And finally, I'll congratulate the winners of this year's Charles L. Edson Tax Credit Excellence Awards. In our Renewable Energy segment, I'll describe the provisions of a bill introduced last week that would disqualify, that's right, disqualify solar panels manufactured in China from the 30% investment tax credit. Then, I'll share remarks from Energy Secretary Stephen Chu, who last week called for an extension of the production tax credit. I will also share an important reminder about the timing of applications for renewable energy projects that plan to seek Section 1603 cash grants. Finally, in our historic tax credit discussion, I'll share another update from the state of Missouri, where the battle over state tax credits waged on. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, last week, House Speaker John Boehner vowed to only raise the debt ceiling if the increase is offset with an equal amount of spending cuts. Speaker Boehner also outlined his plan for a fast-track process to guarantee that tax reform would take place in 2013, which he said would cover both individual and corporate taxes. He said that the House will vote on extension of expiring 2001 and 2003 tax cuts this fall before the November elections. In the context of comprehensive tax reform, Speaker Boehner expressed his hope that reform would eliminate deductions, credits, and special carve-outs. The Hill reports that Boehner's comments came as a surprise to many Republicans. It's considered an incredibly long shot that both chambers of Congress and the White House would be able to come to an agreement with respect to such significant issues during the election season. That did not prevent other lawmakers, however, from agreeing that the debate should be started before the lame duck session. Notably, Senator Joe Lieberman said he's worried that waiting until the final weeks of 2012 will make it impossible to avoid $1.2 trillion in automatic spending cuts and significant tax increases. Likewise, Senator Olympia Snow called on her colleagues to lay the groundwork for the immense issues that will need to be decided by year's end. Boehner's remarks were considered by many to be the opening salvo in the battle over debt and spending, which is expected to culminate this December when dozens of tax provisions expire. 
Now, turning to extenders, in related news, House Ways and Means Subcommittee on Select Revenues Measures Chairman Pat Tiberi also said last week that an extension of the 2001 and 2003 tax cuts will get a vote before the House takes its August recess. Chairman Tiberi was speaking at a conference sponsored by Baker Hostetler, and he said the goal is to pass a one-year extension of the tax cuts to give Congress time to work on a comprehensive tax reform bill in 2013. He also indicated that work on a package of dozens of expired or expiring temporary tax provisions, so-called extenders, is ongoing and will likely be handled separately. That's right, extenders will likely be handled separately from the so-called Bush tax cuts. And speaking of tax reform, Ways and Means Chairman Dave Camp last week made remarks at the Federal Policy Group's 2012 Tax Budget and Legislative Policy Seminar. To the surprise of no one, during his remarks, Chairman Camp urged comprehensive tax reform. He also cited the Ways and Means Committee's framework for comprehensive tax reform that he said would bring both the corporate and individual rate in line at a top rate of 25% on both sides. Chairman Camp noted that there is strong support to use the expiration of the 2010 compromise as leverage to force action in 2013 on comprehensive tax reform. On the topic of tax extenders, he acknowledged that in 2010, 73 tax provisions expired. He said he's asked Chairman Tiberi to hold an open review of tax extenders. Chairman Camp said, and I quote, If extenders are beneficial and are helping the economy, then they should be seriously considered. On the other hand, if an extender has outlived its value, and if it is not producing the economic benefits it once was, then we need to determine whether there is merit in continuing that provision. Close quote. House Ways and Means Chairman Dave Camp said that additional extender hearings will be held by Representative Tiberi. And since that statement, we've learned that the first such additional extender hearing will likely be held on Friday, June 8th. Coincidentally, that's the second day of the Novogratic New Markets Tax Credit Conference. Now, turning to two hearings that were held last week, and as mentioned in last week's podcast, on May 16th, a House Financial Services Subcommittee held a hearing entitled The Impact of the Dodd-Frank Act, What It Means to Be a Systemically Important Financial Institution. The hearing examined the Financial Stability Oversight Council's, FSOC's, and its discretionary authority to designate non-bank financial firms as systemically significant financial institutions, or SIFIs, bearing in mind that SIFIs will likely see some sort of vocal rule limitation on their ability to make private equity investments. At the hearing, Chairman Shelley Moore Capito, a Republican from West Virginia, said that the process for and the effect of designating non-bank financial institutions as systemically significant is still unclear. She said that a systemically important financial institution, or a SIFI, designation sends a signal to the market that a financial institution is too big to fail. She also said that the Federal Reserve might not have the expertise needed to effectively supervise non-banks. Michael Gibson, Director, Federal Reserve Division of Banking Supervision and Regulation, said that the Federal Reserve would need to tailor the standards that are in the proposed rule to the specific characteristics of non-bank companies. Also, Lance Auer, Treasury Deputy Treasury Deputy Assistant Secretary for, for Financial Institutions, 
said that the first designation stage is currently underway. Our said that in stage two, the FSOC will look at a six-factor framework and that this stage will look at all publicly available data. Our said that he expects less than 50 firms will make it past the stage one threshold. He said that stage one is intended to be more of a screening device to identify those firms where the council will spend more of its time and effort. He emphasized that it's premature to say how many firms will ultimately be designated as SIFIs. Now, please send me an email if there are other parts of this hearing that you found particularly notable. Now, turning to charities, also on May 16th, Chairman Charles Bustani, a Republican from Louisiana and chair of the House Ways and Means Subcommittee on Oversight, held a hearing on tax-exempt organizations. Now, this hearing is one of many that are expected to be held in the run-up to possible major tax reform next year. Chairman Bustani noted that tax-exempt organizations employ 10% of the entire workforce and they hold $2.5 trillion in assets. The hearing focused on governance of nonprofits. However, some other matters did come up, such as there was bipartisan agreement that charities serve an important role. See, bipartisanship is possible, agreeing that charities serve an important role. But more seriously, concerns were expressed that efforts to reduce the top individual tax rate from 35% to 25% might lead to adverse changes to the charitable contribution deduction and reduce the incentive to make charitable contributions. As with the SIFI hearing, send me an email if there were other parts of this charitable organization, tax exempt organization hearing that you found particularly notable. My email address is michael.novogradic at novaco.com, or you can send an email to cpas at novaco.com. I always enjoy hearing from you. In new market tax credit news, Novogradic Company has learned that the release of the new market tax credit application has been delayed. It was originally expected that the 2012 new market tax credit application round would open sometime in May. The CDFI fund has indicated that instead of a May release, it's unlikely that the application will be released before late June. No details have been provided regarding the cause of the delay. I will let you know, though, that as we learn more about the timing of the new market tax credit application and the next allocation round, we'll update our listeners. We'll do that through future podcasts, as well as to the subscribers of our free industry alert email. And if you have questions about applying for new markets tax credits, contact Annette Stevenson in our Cleveland, Ohio office, John Shreddy in our Dover, Ohio office, or Brad Elphick in our Atlanta office. Turning to Congress, low population census tracts may soon have more opportunities to qualify for purposes of the new market tax credit program under legislation proposed in the House. The bill, H.R. 5718, was introduced last week by Democratic Rep. Ed Towns of New York. The bill would expand the criteria for low population census tracts, that would be population census tracts with populations of less than 2,000, to be treated as low-income communities. Currently, to qualify as low-income communities, low population census tracts must be contiguous to at least one designated low-income community and must also be located within an empowerment zone. Under H.R. 5718, the area would still need to be contiguous to a low-income community, but could qualify as a low-income community by either being within an empowerment zone or having one of the following. 
a poverty rate higher than 30%, a median family income of no higher than 60% of the greater of statewide family median income or the metropolitan area family median income. The third criteria, a median family income of no higher than 60% of the statewide median family income if in a non-metropolitan area. Or the fourth criteria, an unemployment rate not less than one and a half times the national average. If the bill is enacted, the revision would apply to taxes beginning after December 31, 2011. H.R. 5718 was referred to the House Ways and Means Committee and will continue to monitor the legislation, so stay tuned for future updates. And if you want to review the bill, it's available online at www.newmarketscredits.com. In low-income housing tax credit news, last week, on May 11th, the House Real Estate Caucus held a meeting to brief members of the House representatives on the low-income housing tax credit. The event was arranged by the co-chairs of the House Real Estate Caucus, Ways and Means Committee member Richard Neal and Congressman Michael Turner. In their invitation to the briefing, Congressman Neal and Turner described the low-income housing tax credit as, and I quote, the federal government's primary means of encouraging the production of affordable housing. During the briefing, a panel of industry participants demonstrated how the tax credit works, they described the program's impact on economic development, and they discussed the tax credit's role in helping meet the need for affordable rental housing throughout the country. The panel represented each of the main stakeholders in the low-income housing tax credit program. This included state agencies, nonprofit and for-profit developers, tax credit syndicators, investors, and, most importantly, tenants. A number of congressional staff members did attend the event. Briefing participants encouraged attendees to urge their members to protect the low-income housing tax credit during tax reform, as well as the co-sponsor, H.R. 3661, the bill to extend or make permanent the 9% tax credit floor. Now, turning to HUD, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development last week issued a request for comment on proposed regulatory changes to the Section 8 program. The proposed rules are a follow-up to the regulations originally proposed in November 2008 and are generally related to the Housing and Income Recovery Act, also known as HERA, back in 2008. The November 2008 notice provided information about self-executing changes that require no action from HUD, as well as those that require new regulations. The May 15 notice proposes to establish in regulation the reforms made by HERA and outlined in the November 2008 notice and other related regulatory and statutory changes to the Section 8 project-based and tenant-based voucher programs. The May 15 notice includes the following changes, and they are numerous. In regards to income regulations, it excludes from the definition of income deferred Department of Veteran Affairs disability payments. In regards to tenant-based vouchers, it requires public housing authorities to perform a rent comparability study when an owner requests from the housing authority an amount that is higher than the maximum tax credit rent at a low-income housing tax credit property. In regards to project-based vouchers, HUD has proposed several conforming and clarifying changes and several other proposed changes. For instance, conforming and clarifying changes include a conforming change for tenant-based voucher applicability, the addition of new definitions and clarifications of existing definitions, and several information collection 
and transparency changes. Now, isn't that clear? Moving on, HUD has also proposed a change related to existing unit standards. HUD has proposed that a unit must meet the Housing Quality Standards, HQS for short, within 60 days of the date a public housing authority selects it for a voucher. Additionally, the unit must not need more than $1,000 in repairs to facilitate compliance with the standards, and the owner cannot plan to perform more than $1,000 in repairs upon the unit or do anything that would result in noncompliance with the standards within one year after the HAP contract has been executed. Proposed changes also reflect HUD's goal to provide reliable, long-term housing for tenants. HUD has proposed automatic renewal for tenant leases and to prevent owners from evicting tenants without good cause. In the notice, HUD said that the regulatory changes do not implement new policy but are intended to make the rules reflect current practices and clarify certain regulations. The agency said that it would welcome comments on the language used to incorporate and clarify the self-executing changes. HUD also welcomes comments on the proposed rules. Those interested in commenting should submit their comments to HUD by July 16, 2012. The changes that I mentioned are only a few of a number of changes that are proposed in the notice, so I encourage you to visit the HUD Resource Center at www.hudresourcecenter.com to read the entire document. The May 15th notice, as well as the November 24, 2008 notice, can be found under the Guidance tab. And, of course, if you have any questions about the notice, feel free to contact someone at Novigrad & Company. You might start with Susan Wilson at our Austin office. To wrap up today's Housing Task Force discussion, I'd like to congratulate the winners of the 18th annual Charles L. Edson Tax Credit Excellence Awards. Hard to believe they're 18 years old. These national awards recognize outstanding low-income housing tax credit developments and are presented every year by the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition, a coalition for which I serve on the board. Last week, the coalition announced the names of the six first-place finishing properties as well as 10 honorable mentions for the 2012 awards. A panel of five judges selected this year's winners from a pool of over 50 applications from 24 states. The first place developments are Divine Legacy on Central in Phoenix, Arizona. That's the award for metropolitan or urban housing. Colville Homes II in Inchilium, Washington for rural housing. Apache ASL Trails in Tempe, Arizona for special needs housing. Salem Towers Senior Housing in Malden, Massachusetts, for senior housing. Northwest Gardens in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, for green housing. And Heritage View Homes Phase 2 in Cleveland, Ohio, for public housing. Each winner will be recognized at a luncheon ceremony on June 21st in Washington, D.C. I'll be there, so I hope to see a lot of my listeners there. You can find a complete list of award recipients on the Coalition's website at www.taxcreditcoalition.org. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, Senator Sherrod Brown and Charles Schumer last week introduced a bill to disqualify solar panels that are manufactured in China from the 30% investment tax credit. That's right. Solar panels manufactured in China would not be eligible for the 30% investment tax credit if this bill passed. The senators assert that Chinese solar panels have undercut U.S. companies and jobs. The lawmakers report 
that U.S. wholesale solar producers have seen prices plunge from $3.30 a watt in 2008 to $1 a watt today. To address this, they say Senate Bill 3183 would level the playing field for U.S. wholesale solar producers. Senate Bill 3183 would narrow the scope of solar panels eligible for the ITC by adding a domestic content requirement. To meet this requirement, 70% of a solar panel's parts must be American-made. Or, if the final point of manufacture is in the U.S., at least 50% of the components must be made in the U.S. The bill would also modify the Residential Energy Efficient Property Credit in the same way. Now, we'll keep tabs on this situation, and we will report on the bill's progress in future podcasts. A copy of the bill is available at www.energytaxcredits.com. You can also check one of my recent tweets. Turning to news from Energy Secretary Chu, last week, on May 16th, Energy Secretary Stephen Chu delivered a keynote address at the World Renewable Energy Forum in Denver, Colorado. His remarks highlighted the economic opportunities in the clean energy economy as well as the Obama administration's commitment to strengthening U.S. leadership in the global clean energy race. During his remarks, Secretary Chu spoke about renewable energy tax credits. Specifically, he said, and I quote, Today, we want to talk about the importance of Congress taking action to extend federal clean energy tax credits like the production tax credit and the 48-CAP-C advanced energy manufacturing tax credit that are supporting companies and workers here in Colorado and across the country. America can't afford to miss out on the clean energy opportunity. That's why President Obama has called on Congress to extend the production tax credit and expand the 48-CAP-C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit. Close quote. I'd like to wrap up this week's podcast with a reminder for those renewable energy developers who are planning to apply for the Section 1603 cash grant. For projects placed in service prior to, that's before, September 30, 2012, an applicant for the Section 1603 cash grant has until the later of 90 days after placement in service or September 30, 2012 to file a combined begun construction and placed in service application. For projects placed in service after September 30, 2012, an applicant for the Section 1603 cash grant has to submit its begun construction application by September 30, 2012, and subsequently file its place in service application within 90 days of the property being placed in service. Missing these deadlines could make an applicant ineligible for the cash grant. If you have questions about this matter, please contact Tony Graponi in Novogratz Boston office or Stephen Tracy in our San Francisco office. In historic tax credits... We turn to the state of Missouri. The historic tax credit battle raged until the bitter end as Missouri's legislative session wound down last week. On Wednesday, May 16th, just two days before the session ended, the Senate added language that would cap the state's historic tax credit at $75 million annually. That was added to a bill that was meant to increase due diligence for economic development incentives. The Senate added this historic tax credit provision to HB 1865. Now, the Senate passed the bill in a 28-3 vote and sent it back to the House. The House had until Friday at 6 p.m. to take up the bill or it would die. The representatives also had to vote on the bill as is. Any changes to the bill would have killed it. The House representatives did not 
add HB 1865 to its legislative calendar and did not vote on the bill on Friday. What does that mean? Barring a special session of the legislature, it means this bill is dead. State tax credits were a contentious issue in the Missouri legislature this year, but they haven't taken center stage as they did last year, when they were the focus of a special legislative session and a series of hearings. It will be interesting to see what happens to the historic tax credit next session. The Post-Dispatch reports that term limits and redistricting will force out several senators, including Senator Jason Crowell, who introduced many of the tax credit reform bills and led hearings on the credits last year. Be sure to tune in to future Tax Credit Tuesday podcasts for the latest updates on historic tax credits in Missouri and the other 49 states. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novogratik.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novago.com.